Welcome, Dave, to the pod beyond. Are you excited? Oh, I am beyond excited. <laughs> uh, we are here, of course, to talk about every week of Jim Cockett Promotions version of World Championship Wrestling. Uh, we discussed on the both the regular How Wrestling Explains and this special pod beyond feed about uh, how we got to where we were and who we'll be meeting when we get there. We uh, discussed that. You can check that out in either one of those streams. We are here to talk about the first episode, which is April 6th. 1985, exactly 24 years ago today when you were hearing this. It also premiered at 6.05, which is when this is premiering. So it's basically like we're traveling back in time by hitting the exact moment that uh, this originally happened. Right, Dave? Exactly like that. <laughs> it's back to the future because this is the best gimmick we could think of for a podcast uh speaking of gimmicks for a podcast as we discussed we are going to be breaking things down in segments like good podcasters and we're going to start off with the thumbs up thumbs down segment now don't get worried when we say this or when we go through this we're going to go through it very quickly because we're trying to get done in five minutes before we get to where's dusty and uh when we're doing that, we're going to cover every single match. We will be getting to all of those matches later on. So don't feel like you're missing out on anything on the way there. It's kind of a magic trick because there are a ton of segments on this show, right, Dave? Uh, yeah, they were trying to pack the proverbial many pounds of shit into the bag that doesn't hold that much proverbial shit. Uh, I mean, it's their first episode, so they're clearly being really ambitious with trying to introduce all the important characters that you need to know going forward. But there's 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 some chaos going on, too. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, are you ready to start up our thumbs up, thumbs down segment? I was born ready to start our thumbs up, thumbs down segment, Nick. Okay, so we start off with Ivan Koloff and Crusher Trusev uh, with Nikita Koloff in their corner versus George South and Greg Stone. Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down for you, Dave? Thumbs up. Thumbs up for me as well. The next is one I think we may have kind of disagreed on because I gave it a meh and you gave it a yeah. Uh, it is an interview with NWA champion Ric Flair. And I think for reasons we'll get into during Horseman Business, this is kind of not full Ric Flair, but it introduces him. Yeah, definitely. Like I said just a minute ago, they were clearly trying to let you know who all the important characters are right away. And here they're like, all right, this is Flair. This is our champion. To be the man, you got to beat the man. Woo. And another agreement we had, at least in terms of our overall feeling of the segment, was the Jimmy Valiant versus Mark Hill match. The Mark Hill match. I hate Jimmy Valiant, so I didn't like the match. I like the ending. You are pretty much indifferent to Jimmy Valiant, right? Yeah, yeah. This this match didn't do much to, to for me. I, 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 I like Jimmy Valiant a little more than you, I think. But this match just felt a little soft. And if you're trying to get across that, you know, that this is a really big, great wrestling show, maybe this shouldn't have been the second match you show people. Yeah, probably not. Uh, which is a, the next match is a pretty good match. We both liked it, but not as much as we could have. It is a Tully Blanchard and Baby Doll with Baby Doll versus Sam Houston match. And the reason I think we both didn't like it as much as we could was that Dusty Rhodes does commentary on it, and it's kind of terrible, right? Yeah, very distracting. We both had a ton of praise for the Sam Houston Arn Anderson. Uh, match back in our Arn episode, but I, I was a little underwhelmed by this one in spite of my normal love for television. Yeah, and uh, th th that is followed, of course, by a segment, another segment of Dusty Rhodes. He's doing an interview. Bunch of personal insults, things we were both really down on. Did not like this segment. Nope, nope. I already hate Dusty. Uh, and uh, you like superstar Billy Graham a lot more than I do, but he is with who? Uh, 
Paul Jones. And they are facing off against Rocky King. Well, I guess superstar Billy Graham is facing off Rocky King, who's actually my favorite jobber. We'll be talking about her in, in the jobber showcase. And uh, you like, like I said, you, I think, like superstar Billy Graham more than I will. We will be getting that, uh, getting to that in the Who Paul Jones segment. Another, uh, something we did agree on, and actually we agreed on the next couple of segments, but uh, the Born to be Wild video featuring Magnum TA is one of the cheesiest things I've ever seen in my entire life, but it's really fantastic. Yeah, it's perfect 80s cheese. Yeah, uh, speaking of perfect 80s hair, I guess, it, uh, Fre- Freebird Michael Hayes cuts a really great promo at Ric Flair, where Ric Flair is in the ring with Gene Lagan, uh, who we will eventually be talking about in another Jabber Showcase. Uh, we are going to be talking about the Freebird Michael Hayes uh, bit during the uh, match beyond with Rich Kaysen at the end of the show. And I think we're going to get into him uh, and the next and the match that comes after in horseman business. So you have that to look forward to. Uh I did not look forward to this segment because it was a Jimmy Valant segment, uh, but you liked it, actually, which was him carrying his old lady at the axe handle, uh, which he used to break Paul Jones' arm. Uh, again, I think this is a situation where you like Jimmy Valant's promo style more than I do because uh, it reminds you of you, you said, but I think you're a much better promo. Speaking of great promos, though, uh, I really enjoy the Ole Anderson. I think you did too, breaking up with Thunderbolt Patterson uh, promo. It's a really great job he does of taking over that interview. Yeah, definitely. We talked about this piece in the RN episode as well. So so go back and check that out. But yeah, this is a, a great turn, a, a great angle. And all the Ole and RN stuff on this show is at least a soft thumbs up. And most of it's a strong thumbs up. Yeah, uh, the uh, you're of course speaking about the Raging Bull Manny Fernandez match, which we were both kind of mad on, maybe a little bit of a soft thumbs up. Uh, but we both really love the ending, which was uh, Olin Arn, Arn team up against Bull. Uh, Thunderbolt comes in and makes a save, and Oli finally turns on Thunderbolt, and they do it pretty much perfectly. Yeah, agreed. Strong angle. Real good. Uh, and uh, my favorite segment in the entire show, Ivan Koloff, uh, he cuts a great promo congratulating Oli on joining the dark side again. It's one of my favorite segments I've ever seen in a wrestling show. We both really liked it. Uh, we were both mad, like we said on the interview. The second interview that Ric Flair gives is his third appearance on the show. He is very overexposed at this point, right? Yeah, too much flair and too much dusty, as we're about to talk about in a few minutes, too. Yeah, uh, Magnum TA versus Paul Barnett. You really like this. I really didn't. We're going to talk about why in the Jobber Showcase. But I think it's that uh, you like how he's presented, Magnum TA is presented, and I don't. Yeah, he was just super duper strong here. So, I mean, it, you know, you, you're either going to like it or you're not going to like it when someone beats someone in three seconds. Yeah, literally. Uh, but we both love the Perfect 10 video. What did you call it? You said it was the only good use of, uh, what was what was the band? REO Speedwagon. Yeah, REO Speedwagon. The only good use of REO Speedwagon, which I would be inclined to agree because I don't know any REO Speedwagon songs. But uh, this is one of my favorite segments that we're going to be covering. Um and after that, we have the Barbarian with who? Paul Jones uh, versus Joshua Strad. This is a Stroud, I should say. And this is a match that we're both met on because it's kind of a long squash. But I think it's still better than the next segment, which is another fucking Dusty Rhodes promo, which I would almost go as far as to say that was a thumbs down for me. But it's Dusty, so it's always just kind of a match. Yeah, agreed. Once again, it's like he's just trying to he's he's trying to kind of put his finger in every pie. He's reminding everybody of every angle he's ever been in with every heel. It's just a lot to take in. Once again, considering this is supposed to be a first episode. Yeah, and uh, actually, the what comes after though is the best promo in the entire show, I think, which is Tully Blanchard with Baby Doll calls out Dusty as a hootering, a hootering, and a hollering. Uh, awesome thing. We'll get about it. We'll get into it during both Where's Dusty and in Horseman business because I think these are all seeds that are being planted to 
eventually grow the horsemen out of the fertile soil of Jim Crockett promotions. Uh, less fertile soil, at least for me, I put fuck no, or double thumbs down, I guess you would call it for this. Uh, you liked it, though, it was the Buddy Landell match with J.J. Dillon in his corner. I think we'll, we're going to talk about it more eventually because Buddy Landell features a lot in these episodes. I think this is another, we don't, if you can tell the divergence aren't in the presentation, I think it's in whether or not we like the guy. And I, I'm actually interested to see that dynamic for us going forward because we're not used to that. I'll say it right now, Nick. I thought Buddy Landell's match on this show was better than Ric Flair's match. Uh, you Well, we will discuss that later. Okay. Uh, uh, great promo though by JJ Dillon. Less great match with Black Bart and JJ with JJ Dillon in his corner. In fact, the middle rope breaks during this match uh, kind of farts all the way around. Yeah, I thought JJ was really good in this match. If you kept your eyes on him, but like the actual match in the ring, not worth paying attention to. Not at all. Uh, uh, maybe if not for the Tully. Uh, interview i think the best this is the most important promo on the show it's the rekindling of a dynasty promo that arn anderson ole anderson cut uh it's a little too jive talky for a white dude from georgia but it is uh sorry texas too maybe i don't know but um this is a really great start to what is clearly the beginning this is the most clear indication that we're getting some horseman business coming up pretty dang soon yeah, definitely. Exciting stuff. I'm, I'm already tingling and we're only in the first episode. <laughs> and then uh, speaking of tingling, uh, in not a good way, I think, is the Jimmy Valent Life's Been Good to Me So Far video. What a goofy 80s mess this is. But uh, one, another one of the great three great 80s music video segments on the show that we'll be definitely getting into later. Uh, and then we finish with, of course, I bet you can't guess uh, what. Oh, do you hear that, Dave? Do you hear that? Whenever Dusty wrote the American Dream. It's not on screen. All the other characters should be asking, where's Dusty wrote the American Dream? That's right, folks. We are finally in our first segment of Where's Dusty? And Dusty is, uh, where is Dusty, Dave? Dusty is all over the place cutting lazy rock promos. Just all catchphrases and personal insults and I'm involved with every heel and better than all of that. Yeah, it is really unconscionable how much he talks about himself uh, throughout the show. And the other thing that is really annoying and it is way different than every other person on the show is that he uses personal insults a lot during this. And it really affects your ability to enjoy the promo because he's like saying nasty things about baby doll and like, yeah, they say that stuff about the fans indirectly. They'll be like, Oh, y'all you fat idiots in the crowd. But it's like, that's, the heel's job is to be an asshole. And, and this is something we actually talked about during the Booker T episode that premiered on Wednesday, that like baby faces are supposed to stick up for themselves. They're not supposed to be bullies. And Dusty just comes off as a bully, like The Rock and a lot of these promos. It's not a good look for him at all. It's probably the most disappointing thing about watching this is how unlikable Dusty is. And you can understand why so many people in the back had a real distaste for him at this point. Yeah, and it's interesting because, like, he's talking about, you know, Flair, and he's talking about Tully. Like, he's talking about these heels who are on the show, and, like, those heels do such a good job in their own segments getting themselves and getting their heel acts over. They do not for a second. None of those heels benefited from Dusty cutting whatever three-and-a-half promos basically throughout the show. Like, he wasn't doing anything to, like, enhance the angles or, or make them seem any better. It was, it, it just like, it was, 
it, it just kind of like smelled of him like being on the show and talking about how he'd already feuded with everybody. Yeah, he goes out of his way to find himself in every single meaningful segment on the show or appear immediately after. He's the all-time, the worst co- possible version of Triple H where he's writing the show and is also the star of the show. And it really affects your ability to, if you understand that, enjoy what he's doing because he's so clearly the person writing his... It's In other words, it's not a feeling where, oh, he's just... Again, he's a baby. He's the baby face in the company and he's just such a dick and not in a charming way. Not in like a Magnum TA badass way even. He's just like a guy trying to be cool that is telling you, you he's cool enough that you end up just being like, all right, dude, you're cool. But he's not. He's not cool at all, Dave. No, I mean, we talked in the Booker episode about how, like, part of being a great baby face is not taking shit. But it's like Dusty pushes beyond that, and he, like, actively needles the heels and antagonizes them. Like, which is, like I said, like, there's a difference between not taking shit from bad people and actually, like, poking bears so that you can, like, beat them up and hit them with your elbow and laugh at them. If you agitate a bear and it comes at you and you shoot it, that doesn't make you a hero. It makes you an asshole that got lucky because he had a gun to kill a bear. It's And that's what it feels like, is he's just... Of course you're able to cut all of these promos and have no real consequences for it. You're writing the fucking show. It's such an, a transparent use of power that it becomes distasteful pretty quickly. And... Again, like we mentioned, you mentioned that there are a lot of heel promos that none of them make them, the other guys they're talking about, look like shit. They're all about how tough everybody is and how this is the best competition in the world. We'll get into in the From Russia with Love segment. That is basically Ivan Koloff's gimmick, is that he's a heel whose entire job is to put over every baby face on the show. And Dusty just... Is the, has the complete? That's not the opposite job of the, is not to put down every heel. That's not the job of the lead babyface and honestly the head writer of the show. He's literally in the end credits. It's I don't want to say it's unconscionable, but it's really something we're going to have to struggle through on this show. And we're only in the first episode, Nick. Like I, I told you in our little rundown, I just made a note that like by the end of his second promo, I was like. Oh my god, I was expecting to be sick of Dusty like five episodes in. I'm sick of Dusty 15 minutes. Yeah, it is all around just not a good look at all. I am the least looking forward to, but the most, at least it's pretty much the easiest segment possible, uh, is the Where's Dusty segment. Week after week as something that's going to be kind of depressing for us to sit through because the rest of the show is so good, including the Jobber Showcase, which it may be your favorite segment. Oh yeah, definitely. I have a, a, a great love for the the also rans, for the, the carpenters, for the, the underneath guys, for the guys who look like shit and always lose. Perhaps the king of this subset of wrestlers is George South, right? He's one of he seems like one of your favorite wrestlers, period, just because he's so dang good at being a jobber. I mean, he's still out there. He's still around. He's still training guys, and he's still wrestling indie shows like 30 years later. But yeah, I mean, George South was kind of the king of that crop of the mid-Atlantic jobbers. He's got the perfect thing where like he's tall enough, but like he looks like whatever the opposite of impressive is. He looks negative impressive. And like he doesn't look like a very good athlete. He's not eye-catching in any way, but like he takes all the bumps very like flat and makes great sounds with them and like he's a much better athlete than he looks so he he really does the thing where it's like i don't know sometimes the wwe or even in like uh mlw which i usually love they're guilty of it 
where they just bring in the most pathetically small jobber and it's not even like making the main eventer look more impressive. All you notice is that the jobber is tiny. You're like, that dude's 5'2 or whatever. Yeah, you know? it, it can work for somebody like Ron Strowman where everyone's going to look small. It's hilarious if they're extra small. But there's diminishing returns if you want somebody to look good beating the shit out of somebody. Like Ricky Steamboat wasn't small, but he wasn't as big as everybody else he was fighting. So he looked great every time he got his ass kicked. Yeah, definitely. And I think George South just had the the size and the skill set and the the anti-look, so to speak, to, to, to really just like pull off the job perfectly for it to be all about the other guy, but the other guy not having to worry about like carrying some schlub through a match without killing him. Yeah, it is. He is the perfect combination. He is like 21 and 24 where they're expendable, but also durable. It's uh, that is really what you want from your henchmen slash your jobbers. So I think, Dave, it's time to talk about my distaste I don't hate him. He's just not my favorite for Magnum TA. And I think this Paul Barnett character might be part of the reason why I, I think he, I think that the presentation of Magnum TA is too simple. Like he's too powerful for the category he's in. It feels like, it feels like if he were to face George South or a Gene Lagan, like Rich and I are going to talk about Gene Lagan isn't a great wrestler, but he gives somewhat of a fight to Ric Flair. So are they saying that Magnum TA is, so good he would completely destroy Ric Flair at a level like is this going to be the case for every single performer I worry about making Magnum TA look too good by having him destroy jobbers in literally one move am I crazy you're like really making Magnum TA out to be like Roman Reigns over here Nick I I feel like you're you're already just planting the seeds of, of of 2019 wrestling fandom into into 1985 Crockett yeah, welcome to Thunderdome, bitch. No, but I, I do like Magnum TA as he moves along, so I guess it's kind of cheating because I know it works out okay for the most part, unfortunately. Um, but I think that with me, for uh, for me with Magnum TA, it's the they're not even matches. They're literally a move. I wish that something would happen in one of these matches that felt like not even it makes me think that they're hiding something instead of making him look good. Does that make sense? No, I do know what you mean. And that's why I made the joke about Roman Reigns. Like thinking back to like the CM Punk interview where he said like, oh, it's all about make sure Roman looks good, make sure Roman looks good, make sure Roman looks good, etc, etc. But but no, I, I do know what you mean. Like Like sometimes doing the one move squash match. It's like on one hand, it shows you're dominant, but on the other hand, in most contexts, it's really disappointing for the fans, especially the people who are actually there live. That's like not what they want to see at their core. Even if they know they want to see their favorite win, they want to see the wrestling contest because they are wrestling fans. So, I mean, you can have the problems of the long squash match. Like you talked about with the barbarian match earlier, but, like, at the same time, you also don't just want to do one move because then you're not really giving the people wrestling. But I will say, Nick, he was riding a motorcycle. So he's assuredly very tough and could probably beat you with one. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, I like the part Barnett is a joke at Barnett, uh, Jim Barnett, right, uh, for doing the dirty pool he did with the Georgia office. Yeah, I think that Paul Barnett is probably a reference to probably Jim Barnett and Paul Jones, a portmanteau of of some Georgia championship wrestling stuff. But yeah, Barnett was like back and forth in and out with in and out with Vince, in and out with the NWA a great deal. And and the WWF was doing the same thing famously, like in the early nineties, they had a jobber named Bruce Mitchell 
who was, you know, one of the columnists for the Pro Wrestling Torch. So uh, old school wrestling fun right there. Speaking of which, you mentioned Paul Jones, and it is now time for the... I'm actually excited to talk about this because I think we get to have a real disagreement that very rarely happens for us on How Wrestling Explains, which is I do not like Superstar Billy Graham and I hated this match. Dave, defend this match to me. I'm not going to ever make you do that in general, but this match in particular I thought was super poopy and you seem to think it was less poopy. I really enjoyed this match in kind of a sick way. I mean, it's not great wrestling, but I liked that like Graham was constantly like cutting a promo throughout the match, like always talking and like just turning around and shouting stuff. Like I know you always hear back in the day in like the garden when there were still the photographers and stuff, you know, that, that he would be like, oh, Bill after George Napolitano, take a look at this. Like when you have the guys in the hold, like, you know, squeezing them in the head, like you take a picture of this VO magazine. And you can still see like a little bit of that in this match, which I kind of loved him just having this, constant running dialogue with nobody in particular um, as it seemed but no I, I liked the way that he he moved around and like even though everybody makes fun of the karate gimmick there were some things that he was doing to kind of try to get it over he was doing this little kind of hop step and he didn't really hit the ropes too much in the match and stuff like he was trying to kind of move around in a distinct way and you know pick his spots and and deliver his chops one at a time so I, I, I did like, I really kind of dug what he was going for, and I, I didn't really think there was anything wrong with it. Dave, uh, do you remember when they said he was a karate master and then he kicked someone and f- almost fell over? He didn't fall over. <laughs> he stumbled very gracefully into the ropes and caught himself, making it look more impressive. Um, also, I, you wrote in the notes, I think it's hilarious. Uh, and I'm inclined to agree. I don't think Tony and David Crockett are aware that kung fu and karate are not the same thing like it's pretty obvious they have no fucking clue what the difference is between the no no those words are not interchangeable synonyms 1980s white people (laughs) karate and kung fu are are two very different martial arts martial arts kick uh speaking (laughs) speaking of uh 1980s white people how about that barbarian gimmick huh well, you know what? I I have to say, as bad as it is, I think it kind of works. He's like kind of a pseudo road warrior, but he's still also kind of a barefoot savage eating raw fish. Like, you know, he's still like your classic racist 80s Islander, but he's also kind of a road warrior. I kind of dig it. It's a it's a great Paul Jones level gimmick. It's a lot. I think that the Road Warrior gimmick does save it a decent amount. I will give it that. It's definitely a situation where it would be a lot worse if he were just like a a Samoan guy with a hard head. He's actually fits into a like a a style of character that is almost it's like a Road War not Road Warrior. It's like um Mad Max style character. He looks like a guy from a Mad Max movie. He doesn't look like a guy from a racist Disney movie from the 1930s or 40s, right? Like he looks like a guy who's a crazy badass who is also Samoan. And there are connotations in being Samoan in wrestling that are not great. But I, I think it leans more heavily on that like end of the world apocalyptic monster style than the Samoan savage style. I think that's kind of why it works. 
Yeah, definitely. And I will say for for the record, uh, Barbarian is Fijian. Oh, okay. uh, but 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 I know but I know that I mean it's a, once again if Tony and David don't know that kung fu and karate are two different things, I don't. I'm not going to talk to them about Fijians and and Samoans and different forms of Polynesian. I don't <laughs> That's fair. Uh, and Paul Jones doesn't actually do that much, which is why I think it's hilarious that at some point in these shows uh, they call him the best manager in wrestling. Uh, you know how I feel about that. I think Bobby Heenan and Sensational Sherry, I, not at this point, but eventually will be way better than anybody they have on the show right now, even J.J. Dillon as far as I'm concerned. But uh, Jones doesn't really do anything. Uh, no, no. Like you said earlier, he's selling this broken arm. There's some beating the, the ring with his cane and shouting at the ref to count faster. But no, no, he, he's not really doing anything functional. So I think this is uh, this segment, if not for the Jabber Showcase, would be our number one segment. But uh, it's horseman business time, Dave. (laughs) You knew the draft I was going to put in. That's good. Like we said, the Flair promos, you can kind of see what's great about the Flair promos and them not being great. You can see where eventually the horseman would give him the edge that he needed to become Rick fucking Flair and not just regular Rick Flair world champion who's turning into a bad guy. Yeah, definitely. I, I think that, that this show, like I said, was trying to serve a lot of masters. And one of those masters is making sure everybody who's watching knows who Rick Flair is and that he's the man. And I think there's some kind of s- some work left undone. And it's because there's like two promos that are not different enough but also not similar enough it's like there's two different rick flares it's like there's mm-hmm. there's suit flare and robe flare and they each cut a promo but like i don't know it doesn't it it, it it seems like it's lacking impact am i wrong with that no we are in wholehearted agreement neither neither of the promos really worked for me and the match did because it's rick flair but the promos are he just doesn't have the edge that makes those promos work. He's just a guy being boastful and being tough. Like he still had the, I'm tougher than I am a chicken shit part of the equation, which I think turns in such a way that it becomes clear that he is a very tough guy, but also that he has completely went to the, not the chicken shit, but like the, I am not going to give you a fair deal in this match to like unless you had a gun to my head and i think that's where the by any means necessary basically style of the andersons is really what propels him into that next level when they break dusty's leg which we'll get to eventually in a couple of months uh that's where they're like he's like oh okay we're playing at a completely different level this is the stakes are much higher than they've ever been. And I think that also ties into uh, Tully to a lesser extent, though I think Tully gets a raw deal dealing with Dusty. And I also think you see the ways in which Dusty and Freebird Michael Hayes and all of these guys that are coming for the throne are going to necessitate all of the 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 real hard heels coming together and forming a real faction that's way beyond Paul Jones' army. It's a real, we're here to fuck shit up faction uh it's probably obviously i'm not saying anything uh, uh, that's new news like they're the greatest faction of all time and that you can see even like the way jj dylan's talking about expanding his empire all these little seeds and it kind of culminates in the andersons being that spark that 
they need to change the game around them and to necessitate a team like the Fort Horsemen that like the Andersons are business picking up in a literal sense. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that Crockett really knew what they had with Flair. I mean, obviously, I think everybody in the NWA knew what Crockett had with Flair and that he was a great singular act, but to really kind of hold down the show and center it around him and make him a figure that, you know, that, that was, that could have a competitive match with a jobber, but still how somehow be like untouchable in the sense that nobody ever really got the better of him. You need a gang in order to do that. And I think that when you watch this show just separately, you, the Andersons and Tully, you get like how they would be great fits for fair. Yes. Like that, the, Tully, like we've talked about this going all the way back to the the Juice Make Sugar original run days when I wrote like a very early thing about Tully Blanchard is that, like Tully Blanchard is almost the same character as Ric Flair. Like he's this super confident kind of suave athlete. And talented. That's the other thing is they're both really talented guys and it, that really helps with the gimmick and making it work. Yeah. And even like in this episode, like I... I told you, like, if I had just watched this episode, I would have told you that Tully Blanchard was a better heel than Ric Flair. Like, he just seems so good on this. And I could even see, like, even if I could switch off the part of my brain that knows what happened, I would have said that, like, holy crap, if you got Tully and Flair together, that would be, like, the best possible tag team. And then with the Andersons already being the great heels, you know, you could see where those four would get together. It really does feel natural, even though the whole mythos is that it, like, wasn't planned and it just kind of happened. Yeah, and I think that the Andersons uh, and the Andersons also bring uh god, how do I put this? Um hmm. They bring a kind of um edge to the proceedings. That's racist. Your soul. That's racist. Your eyes? That's gay. That's homophobic. That's black. That's racist. What Oli is saying is pretty definitively racially tinged is what a newspaper might say. But he's saying stuff about handouts. He's using as many code words as you can without coming out and just saying, I think that I had to carry Thunderbolt Patterson because he was black. And I don't trust Manny Fernandez because he's Mexican or something like that. Like, that's really what Oli gives off. And Arn, too. But Arn has that new Southern style of, like... I'm the Lee Atwater style of like, I'm going to say terrible things, but wink and nudge you with the feeling that I'm not actually saying these terrible things, but I'm really a bad person. Like they're bad people. And we talked about this during the episode zero. That's what makes them great heels as terrible as that sound. It makes, it gives them a real edge. They're bad people on top of being bad asses. And so you don't like them as ass kickers. You don't, you think that they are fighting too rough and playing too dirty instead of just thinking that they're tough guys. Like you might with a uh, Magnum TA or a uh, dusty Rhodes. Like it differentiates them because they're bad people morally and emotionally and personality wise. Yeah, definitely. And I think that Thunderbolt Patterson interaction recap that we talked about already in the Arn episode, I think that Thunderbolt does like a really good job helping get that over that he like sets aside that he establishes this idea that only has within him the potential to be a good redneck or a bad redneck, like the fun, loving beer drinking at the barbecue redneck, like, or the racist, violent redneck. And I think that Thunderbolt does a great job illustrating that and saying that, you know, by leaving 
your friendship with me, by abandoning your friendship with me and choosing your your cousin or your brother, whichever the hell it is, uh, <laughs> and, you know, that, that you you are choosing to be a bad redneck and not a good redneck. And I think that even for like a regional southeastern audience, like that's a language that people speak that like even people who are quote unquote proud rednecks and stuff, you know, most of those people would still say that like the racist aspects of the of the redneck stereotype are are bad. You know what I mean? So I think that that was a great touch with Thunderbolt to to just kind of introduce that idea of there there's these two U's, the good redneck and the bad redneck, and you're choosing to be the bad one. And people told Thunderbolt like he, he people don't change kind of thing, and he be- believed that Oli had changed. It's a really emotionally wrought thing especially when Oli turns on thunderbolt he waits and i took me a couple of times to watch so uh arn uh is beating arn and Oli are beating the shit out of manny fernandez uh and then thunderbolt comes down breaks it up and arn and thunderbolt start to get into it and arn is just beating the shit out of thunderbolt and Oli is uh pointedly waiting to see what to do and then thunderbolt attacks him and he goes all right i have to get it attacks Arn, i should say and he gets involved and they nearly kill thunderbolt like it's this real emotional thing where he decides clearly to go to the dark side or yeah i guess the the dark side it's it's a decision to go back to the way things were which he's also explicit about he wants to basically go back to like a segregated world and him agreeing to beat the shit out of thunderbolt patterson is him accepting that as like a like a blood oath it's fucked up <laughs> like yeah definitely and i mean we also saw on this uh on this show again we we saw superstar billy graham wrestle rocky king but i thought it was really brilliant how like there's there's no aspect of race to that match or storyline, especially because I don't know Superstar Graham and his is kind of did the whole kind of like jive talking promo style and stuff too to begin with, and like that match is portrayed as like a straight contest and like Superstar Graham just like wins because he's better, but then that like sets this up to seem like the the much bigger sin because they've already said like look like this is a stratified business but it's not a racist business or at least that's kind of like what they're portraying right in this sports league people of all races get opportunities it's just these douchebags who are the the evil racist ones who want to who want to be sorting the field so to speak yeah it's really a, an interesting thing that i from watching know they carry out pretty decently and they get involved with other stuff i am actually interested to in this segment going forward because i think it'll be an interesting way to talk about the show and the things they're dealing with in a way that won't like not everything is this involved but i think they do a good job with actually engaging with these things even if the outcome isn't always perfect nikita I mentioned earlier in the episode that uh, my favorite segment involved Ivan Koloff, and I guess we're here in Russia now. Uh, in Soviet Russia, he'll put you over, right? I think. <laughs> Dave and I have a story of driving past Yakov Shmirnov's uh, advertisements in Biloxi, Mississippi. Branson, uh, Missouri. Branson, Missouri. Uh, he's a huge star there. And we were driving past, we were driving from San Francisco to my house, actually, where Dave used to live, to where I lived when I was growing up. And uh, on the way, we saw that. So, uh, And in, in Soviet Russia, window washes you is what actually... <laughs> 
<laughs> makes me think of. But uh, this segment, the segment with Ivan Koloff uh, putting over all of the good guys uh, and establishing himself with as a patriarch of the heels on the show is such a brilliant bit of characterization that I don't think you could do in wrestling now because unless you were to do it with a really big time guy, like Ivan Koloff is something you don't really see as much anymore, which is a guy that is still at the top of his game, but even if he can't wrestle necessarily and been in the business for 20 years, like he is still as good a heel as he ever was because he's a great promo and he understands how to wrestle like a heel in the ring. And he does so in such a way that it really feels like he is the grand poobah of the bad guys on the show. Yeah, definitely. He is like the dean of the heels. He definitely does that. Like, he does the best job I've ever seen at being the oldest guy on the show, which seems like a really backhanded compliment. But, like, he's he's wise in the way that, like, an old wrestler should be wise, even though he's a bad guy. Like, that comes across in this promo that he's, he's very smart, intelligent. And like you said, he does the old school heel thing of, like, all he does is go down the line and talk about all the different people who are in that company and how good they all are. It's like you were saying before, like Dusty tearing everybody down. But on the other hand, you have like the, the great territorial heel, just like building everybody up. Yeah. He literally runs out of people to say, but he lists like six or seven. It's not just like, Oh, Dusty Rhodes. Or he goes through down to like, I forgot who, but it's somebody where you're like, oh, really? You're mentioning that guy? Like, Jimmy, I think he, like, mentions Jimmy Valent or something. Like, it's enough where you're like, god damn, you are really going out of your way to put these people over. It is awesome to see. And uh, I actually like the match at the beginning because it's such a good old school bad guy match. They're, the Russians in general are just great at doing bad guy shit. Uh and doing so in a way that feels like you could get away with it every single time, but you would be frustrated watching them get away with it every single time. It's just the right level of dastardly cheating. Yeah, definitely. And I love that adding a choke to something makes it Russian. Like there's at one point where, uh, where uh, Nikita does like a clothesline into a choke and they, they say that that's like a Russian... Oh man, what do they call it? Like the Russian clothesline or whatever. Russian sickle. Russian. Well, yeah, the Russian sickle is his clothesline. But yeah, it's just funny. It's just like it's like a clothesline into a choke, a slam into a choke, a boot into a choke, a tackle into a choke, a choke into a choke. Like when all <laughs> else fails, just fucking choke the guy. That seems to be the tactic that the Russians are uh, are teaching their young athletes. The Russians are the highlight of the show to me in many ways because they are both this vestige of a previous era and perfectly suited for the 80s. Speaking of which, uh, so I decided, though, I want to see if you agree with my list. Uh, I'm going to count down the three most 80s things, and I want to see if you agree or disagree. So I have the Magnum TA video as the third most 80s thing. The Tully video as the second most 80s thing, and the Jimmy Valent video as the most 80s thing I have ever seen. And I don't know if it should still be legal. It was so, like, past its expiration date. <laughs> oh, yeah. If, uh, if Jimmy Buffett had an uncle who was on cocaine, it would have been Jimmy Valiant in that, in that bit. It was pretty frigging out there. But I actually, you know what? I'm the one who hates the levity, who hates the haha. 
And I actually thought that as crazy and out there as that was, it like didn't break the show. They positioned it really well where it's like second to last or third to last on the show. And after you've already seen a lot of wrestling and a lot of promos. So like they do a great job positioning it and like against my best impulses, it's fun. I liked it like a lot. I liked all three yeah. a lot. I loved all three. It works because they are of a time. They are, especially the first one and the last one, are music videos. Period. They, which obviously you're talking nineteen eighty five. This is the heat of MTV. This is really the way you communicate with the young people. And we're just old enough at this point that that visual language of the music video is very familiar to us. I think that's why it's, it doesn't feel outdated. It feels almost advanced and it definitely doesn't, it's very eighties. All three of them are very eighties, but they all work in ways that are kind of timeless because the music video is such a timeless art form. Obviously it can be attached to certain time periods, but like if you look at a great video from the 1980s even if it feels super 80s it's still a great music video and i i think that's why uh it works in a way even if you don't like it because it's kind of like if you had a band play as long as the song's good you can deal with a lot of the other shit when it's like flow rider or machine gun kelly and you hate the song you're kind of like i don't want to listen to this but if it's like a band you don't mind or if they're doing the theme song of uh, like the entrance music for somebody you can kind of deal with it it, that's what this reminds me of. Is this actually like songs I know, which is crazy. They also use "Beat It" uh, for the Bull Manny Fernandez. Like the use of music in the show uh, is the most '80s thing about it. I feel like it's it, very aware of the time and space it's supposed to exist in. Obviously, like they don't know we're time traveling. Yeah, I, I like how the music fits everybody's personality too. Like I, you know, it it really like the. The Magnum vignette, it's about how he's a badass. The Tully vignette, it's about how he's like a sophisticated, rich douche. And the Valiant vignette is about how he's a fun-loving, crazy guy. Like, they're all very effective. The masterful in terms of tone. Yeah. the they, Like you said, they don't break the show, but they also enhance the show uh, in their own ways. Because it really does make Magnum seem like this, like sexual god i mean no matter how homoerotic it is maybe that's what they were going for it, you look at it enough you're like you gotta be swinging both ways on that which not that there's anything wrong with that but i think there's like it, oh god did you just did you just dx our show no you just say not that there's anything wrong i know it's actually a seinfeld reference uh no i think it's kind <laughs> of explicitly homoerotic uh whether or not they realize it when they're doing it and then telly is this rich douchebag that they get over perfectly with this vignette uh with the ario speedwagon song with the way he dresses with the way he treats the woman with the weird shots of like the woman's mouth eating strawberries like it's super weird but it all works to be like did he, is this did this motherfucker produce this shit is he making me sit through this weird that's what i love about it is it feels legitimately like it could be something that he or his people made and like told the wrestling company they had to air. It feels just homemade enough that like the heat's on him. You know what I mean? It, it, I, you just said that and that's exactly what it is. It feels like he made it and forced them to play it, which is just speaks to how well it gets him over as a heel. Yeah. And, and I, I do the Magnum. Well, the reason I picked the Magnum one as the least eighties is because it also feels very seventies. And the idea of he's this like, 
70s Burt Reynolds heartthrob. And for me, the Jimmy Fallon, uh, and which I guess you would call the ballad of the Boogie Woogie Man. Today I have never been dropped from my wig. He really does fit a certain time and place. I don't know if it's 1985, but he's, uh, we talked about this during episode zero. He's very, uh, he fits very well with his, uh, his surroundings uh, in a way that I think transcends how much I hate him. Like, I don't want to say I eventually ended up liking him because he's too shitty in the ring for me to really deal, be able to deal with. Uh, but he does, he is over enough that I can overlook it in a way I don't think I would do if people also didn't give a shit about him. People clearly care about Jimmy Fallon. Yeah, he's definitely got just that over-territorial star type thing where, like, these people have known him for a long time. They probably know that, like, mechanically, athletically... He's not great, but they like love his character and they've been on a long ride with him and they appreciate that and still still feel it and still want to be there. I mean, we uh, we talked about Jeff Jarrett a lot on the Booker episode that we recorded recently. And it's kind of like what Jeff Jarrett had, you know, when, when he recently made his comeback after the Royal Rumble, where people are like, you know, they, they used to maybe think like, oh, well, that guy wasn't this good or we don't like him. But when someone like becomes a nostalgia figure and instead of focusing on how good they are right now and whether or not they deserve the position they're in right now, when you shift the focus to thinking about the journey that you've been on them and the place that they deserve in your heart more so than the place that they deserve on the card, like then you can really kind of still love that those acts that are, you know, maybe from a generation before and kind of grandfathered in. So I thought everything he did on the show, like, yeah, you can see through his wrestling and yeah, his character isn't terribly realistic or grounded or motivated in traditional literary ways. I'm doing lots of air quotes as I talk here, uh, but I, I kind of loved everything he did on the show and I'm not going to apologize for it. I did love one thing, and it wasn't his doing. It was, I think, somebody making up for his mistake, which was the count on the pin he had in the the match that he did with Matt Hill or Mark Hill or whoever the fuck that jobber was. Uh, sorry. Sorry, Mark Hill. That was rude. You're, I'm sure you had a family you had to feed. God bless you. But, uh, yeah, you know what I'm talking about, where the ref slides around Jimmy Valent because I guess he landed in the wrong part of the ring, and counts him on the slide. And then as he steps out of the ring, the ref slides out of the ring, he hits the uh, apron for the two and three and then calls the match from the outside so that Jimmy Valent's kind of on display. Like he goes out of camera range, but still gets the pin. I love that. And I think you can tell with, with Jimmy Valent in particular, the advantages of the studio atmosphere for a wrestling show like this. Jimmy Valent is a star in that room and there's, it's undeniable. And I think if it were in an arena, it'd feel a little bit different now that he wouldn't be an over in the arena, but it is palpable in the studio that he is a guy that people give a shit about. Yeah, definitely. Exactly. You feel that connection between he and the crowd. And like when someone's a baby face, that's really all that matters. If you've got the connection with the crowd, like, yeah, they'll forgive everything else. Yeah. And I also do think, I think it was unfair for me to say that uh, he is completely directionless. I think I've said that if I haven't, he's completely directionless, but uh, he actually <laughs> does have a bit of uh, a, a raison d'etre in this, which is that he hates who. Paul Jones, uh, because Paul Jones, I forgot what Paul, Paul Jones did some asshole thing. Uh, I'll think of it eventually. And we'll talk about it at some point during the who Paul Jones segment. But uh, uh, he, 
he allows him to have a feud that doesn't involve him fighting for any championships or being an important person person on the show, but for him to interact with people who may eventually interact with important people. He gets to be like a secondary character on the show. And I think that works better once you kind of realize that he's not going to be in important matches and he doesn't even really get mentioned by like Dusty when Dusty's rounding up the faces that it kind I think he might mention him, but he's like the fourth or fifth person he mentions that he's not at that forefront of the show. I think it allows you to relax in terms of your time. You're going to have to spend with him. You're going to get goofy music videos and you're going to get um, him dancing and cutting goofy promos. And I think that's like reassuring eventually when you're worried he's going to, you're actually gonna have to watch him cut promos or wrestle in important things. Yeah. It's a dead serious product too. And I think that you, you need that that little bit of event. Like all those Tully and Flair and Dusty promos we heard were just dead serious, dead straight, pretty intense. So I, I, I usually am the one who hates the humor, but for whatever reason, I really enjoyed it in this episode. Maybe I will grow tired of it by next time. We'll see when we get there. Uh, that noise you hear is the beginning chords of Sharpshooter by Dylan Roth, which means we are about to start the match beyond on the other side of that song. And I am here with Rich Kaysen, as uh, Dave and I just mentioned. We wanted to talk before we got into this Ric Flair-Gene Ligon match a little bit about the basic components of, without getting too inside baseball, of a match. What you're seeing when you watch a match. Uh, and you don't have to get too into the gory details of like how you plan a match, but basically what is your understanding of the psychology of a paint by, what somebody might call a paint by the numbers match? Well, basically with the match, um, you have to let the crowd know that there's a baby face and there's a heel. You have to kind of make make it seem like the crowd's never been to a wrestling show before. So you need to kind of make sure they know what the basic characters are in terms of their dynamic in the match. So you have to display a perfect good guy and a perfect bad guy. This way they know who to cheer for and who to boo for. All right, would... Good guy and bad guy, essentially protagonist and antagonist. Yes, like like, that, that like a be, movie. Yeah, because I think uh, we're we're gonna talk about it in the the this match the uh, the the Flair Legon match, however the hell you pronounce his last name. Um, He's a jobber. It doesn't really yeah. matter, matter how you pronounce his last name. He uh, this isn't necessarily a heel version of Ric Flair. It's a in between version. He had just finished feuding with Wahoo McDaniel. Arn Anderson had just arrived on the scene in what is now, what is just turned into World Championship Wrestling. This is actually the first episode, as we mentioned earlier. So there's this dynamic that isn't exactly heel face. It's more of like champion versus jobber, right? There, there is dynamic with that, yes. Um, you also have to display that there's at least somewhat of a, like a, like a chance for anybody to win at any given time. Uh, yeah, uh, basically what you're saying is, and this is something we talked about beforehand, that every match has a face and a heel, even if it doesn't have a face and a heel. It has the person that you're following and the person that you're hoping, not necessarily hoping wins, but is the designated person who's going to come from under whatever they're dealing with. Like, there are obviously a thousand different variations of this, but, like, 
basically every match has somebody cut overcome the other person. Well, right? yes. I mean, think of it just with sports. I mean, there's always some some sort of game where someone's behind and someone's ahead. Mm-hmm. So you kind of think of it in that context more so than good guy and bad guy. It's kind of like... It's an athletic uh, competition, so obviously there's going to be a little bit of an ebb and a flow. Yes. There's, there's going to be always someone behind or, so, you know, there, there's tie games here and there for different yeah. sports. But, but usually there's somebody that has, like, more of the advantage... For most of the match, and someone who doesn't. And then it depends on how exciting or less exciting is, like how much that changes unexpectedly without feeling contrived, right? Essentially, for a wrestling match, you're ma- trying to make it feel like an athletic competition without making it feel like a contrived, planned athletic competition. Exactly. Yeah. So Ronda Rousey, when she says she's going to fuck people up, like that, that can get scary, but it also is kind of adding to the joy of it if they do it correctly, well, right? Yes, but like especially with like someone like Ronda, like there there are certain people that she should go in and destroy, especially with her credentials, mm-hmm. and it makes more sense. But but with her, she's getting more into the actual like wrestling in terms of selling and you know giving and taking, mm-hmm. so it makes for more competitiveness. So yeah. you know, it seems like. People are up to her level, but you don't want to do that too much depending on who she's facing. And Ric Flair in this match, which we're about to get into, uh, don't worry, is really great at making it look like he's champion without making it look like this guy has absolutely no business being in the ring with him. You don't feel at any point like he's going to win, but you're not like, you're not like this guy is a disgrace to professional wrestling and should be ashamed of himself. Exactly. It's like uh, like the um, the first seed facing the 16th seed. Exactly. And you might see an upset, but more than likely that's not going to happen. Yeah. So we're going to start the match now. Um, there's Michael P.S.'s Hayes' hair. Yeah, Michael P.S. Hayes is cutting a promo on Ric Flair while Ric Flair is waiting in the ring for this match. It's, it's one of the great things about the studio-style wrestling is that you have... Promos cut right before the matches or right when the matches are happening, and it allows the characters to interact in a way that you don't get as easily with the all the interviews happening in the ring. This is true. I think Lucha Underground does a really good job with this too. Yes, um, we uh, Dave and I have talked about a bunch. This is there's a stage for interviewing, and then there's the stage which is the wrestling ring. And when you combine the two, it doesn't work as well. And I think that's what you see a lot in modern wrestling, where with this. It adds a really interesting dynamic to the two. Uh, so we're starting in a... Like we had talked about beforehand, I just want to kind of get into the the steps of a match, what you're looking at. So right now, Rick and Gene are... Well, you know Ric Flair's a champion. Gene's, Gene, as I said, is like the 16th seed coming up against the first. And But like anyone who's like trying to get a big opportunity, they're, they're going to be game. Mm-hmm. So... Gene is showing showing a good wrestling skill here. Yeah. It's good basic stuff. And he's, he's showing that he can kind of hang with Flair a little bit. And that would be called the... Uh, that's, the that's the shine. Mm-hmm. And then Ric Flair turns it around pretty quickly for what, what's called the cutoff, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. But, and, but right now, but right now we're still we're still with, with Gene. He's still he's still showing that he's still up to par with Rick. Yeah, so the, it's like almost like a half cutoff. It's kind of like a Oh, okay, I stopped him, but this guy's somebody I have to look at. Because they talk about, the announcers talk about that Gene is a really solid amateur wrestler. And that's why, in the six, the way that a 16 seed might have a random, they're really good at three-pointers, and they're really good at stopping three-pointers. So there's a chance they might have set a team that relies on three-pointers. Exactly right. And it's the same style of... But see right here, Gene gets a little momentum, and then Ric Flair being the, the consummate champion and good 
good wrestler he is, he cuts him off. And this is called the cutoff. He takes advantage and starts doing what's called the heat. Basically, the cutoff obviously is, you know, keep, keeping off, keeping the, uh, the challenger or the babyface off his momentum, the shine, cutting him down and taking advantage. And you're, you're beating on him, that's the heat. Yeah, and it's, it's a really great job, of course. I mean, it's Ric Flair. It's like <laughs> it's saying, like, oh, Michael Jordan had a really good dunk in his mid-20s. Of course he did. Well, but this match in particular, I think, is a really great example of what makes Ric Flair work as a world's champion is that he looks like a champion in this match, but he doesn't make the challenger look like a chump. Exactly. He, and he makes everything look smooth. That he, I mean, he's one of the smooth, smoothest guys. I think that's what his character is basically. He is a baby face, he's a cool baby face, which is really rare. Yeah, you usually get the cool heels where it's like, Oh, I'm gonna throw toothpicks at your face, and he's like, I, I could also do that, but you're gonna like me as a baby face because I'm so good in the ring and I'm such a great champion. Well, here's the thing I think a, like a, a baby face Ric Flair would work today, too. Yeah, uh, but he's not a total babyface because if you look, he just did an unclean break. He didn't pop him in the face, but he did give him a little kick in the shin. And it's because uh, Gene's been annoying him. Yeah. And th- right now you have, is this the hope spot? It's the back and forth punches between... Yeah, right now right now Gene is fighting back a little bit. Um, but it looks like it looks like he's fighting back a little bit, but this, this also, th- there's a difference. Sometimes there's a hope spot and sometimes there's a comeback. You don't always get hope spots. It depends on like how long the match is. Um, sometimes they just cut right into the comeback. So this is the comeback. As of right now, it may. It depends on if, if he, he gets another chance. To... Oh, okay. So it's a contingent thing. Yes. Because right now, cut, Ric Flair cut him off. And he, you know he's got things back in control. Oof. That, that always looks good. Solid back elbow. Yeah. It's it's just, like you said, he's just so smooth. It's such a smooth performance in the ring. He's 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 the best. <laughs> he really is. And just, he's a really big, strong guy, too. And it's something you don't really realize when you look at later Flair, but he looks huge. And, like, he doesn't look hogan size, but he looks like a human being who's a big guy and would actually, in the same way that Arn does, where it's just like, he's a, he's a big guy. He's, 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 he's put together. He's got a great look. And right now he's gonna he's gonna finish his board yeah, off. He, yeah, he uh, he took him to school, which is the crowd pops for it, especially the ladies. The ladies yes, love well fire. they they always love fire. But what I meant before is sometimes there's there's a like a there's a there's a like a hope where you try to make make it seem like the baby face has a chance in the match, but um, you don't always have to go that way. Uh, sometimes you go right into the comeback, especially based on time constraints. So is like hope a super comeback basically? Hope is like a tease of a comeback. Oh, okay. And so, then the comeback is is the super mode. Okay, so uh, the, and the comeback that so that's every match is a comeback, but not all matches have a hope. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. But 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 a lot of major like main matches usually do have hope spots because you're given time. Yes. And this one was not given much time, which is why it's now over. And we have Jimmy Fallon on the screen. Boogie woogie man. 